Hello and welcome to the Dr. Squeeze Show podcast. All the best bits from my weekly radio show on SW20 Radio every Tuesday, 6pm. You can find it on sw20radio.co.uk or on the app. But for now, here's the podcast version. For rights reasons, all the musical selections are shorter and if they are played in full, it's with the express permission of the artist. Please enjoy this week's show. Welcome to the show with your friend and mine. So tell me, Dr. Squee, who's it gonna be this time? We like to hear you talk, and we love to hear you listen. And if you are not subscribed, you won't know what you're missing. So welcome to the Dr. Squee Show. Welcome to the Dr. Squee Show. Welcome to the Dr. Squee Show. Headphones up. Here we go. All right, let's take a look at this email and record this promo. Uh, okay, hi, mate. If you could read this verbatim, that would be fantastic. Thanks for all your help. As always, love, Squee. Read it verbatim. Okay, no problem. Hi, guys. It's Matt from Matt in the Morning and the 505 Drive. I am super excited to tell you that my good friend and possibly the greatest broadcaster in history has finally joined SW20 Radio. That's right. Every Tuesday from 6 to 8 p.m., it's the Dr. Squee Show. Join in for incredible celeb interviews, a focus on local Welsh businesses, great music, and much more. Right here on SW20 Radio, the new sound of South Wales. As far as I go, Lizzie, I couldn't be more excited. I hope that was good, Squee. Hello and welcome to the Dr. Squee Show. I'm Dr. Squee and this is my show. Guys, uh, we've got such an exciting show coming up for you tonight. Uh, we have got Neil Gorton uh, from a pre-recorded interview uh for reasons I'll get into in a bit, I haven't had a chance to record a new interview, uh, but we have got Neil uh, from Millennium FX, and this is an interview I recorded in 2016 with him, and he works on such shows as Doctor Who, he's done extensive work on, he's also worked on Saving Private Ryan, Space Precinct, uh, we've got Catherine Tacho, he's uh, d- developed uh, the look of Nan from that. Uh, we've got Harry Enfield and Paul Whitehouse, and he's worked on Silent Witness. Uh, we have got our musical theme this week, which is going to be Hope, and that's uh, going out uh, with our thoughts to the people in Ukraine at the moment and the situation they're in. And so the, the musical theme is dedicated to them. As well as that, we've also, uh, we're also going to be talking a bit about International Women's Day and playing a couple of tracks uh, in light of that being today. We've got listeners who have said that they're uh, tuning in right now. We've got Barry Jones who said that he was in the car uh, a good 10 minutes before the show was due to start. So uh, we appreciate that. Thank you, Barry. We've also got, who is, of course, by the way, one of our beloved station managers. Uh, we have got... Carl Greenhalf is going to be listening while he's running on a very cold track tonight, so uh, keep warm and enjoy the tunes tonight. And we've got Lizzie, who's going to be listening if his Wi-Fi holds up at work. So we've got all that coming up and so much more, but let's kick it off with some strong female artists. This is actually a track which was requested by Kyle. This is Fight Song by Rachel Platten. You're listening to SW20 Radio. Like a small boat on the ocean Sending big waves into motion Like how a single word can make a heart open Sometimes it lasts in love But sometimes it hurts and stays 
that's someone like you adele and uh, that and fight song by rachel plant are going out to international women's day which is today and uh please everyone give some love out give some hugs out to the women in your life uh yeah i, I love strong women i should do i was raised by one guys look uh we've got uh so much to fit into tonight's show as i say uh tonight's interview by with neil gorton from millennium, millennium fx which uh, largely concentrates on his work on Doctor Who from uh, 2005 to uh, just last season, last year. Um, We talk all about that. The reason why it's one from the archive this week is because I've had a very, very kind of taxing and busy couple of weeks. I'm not saying I've been unlucky, but in the last two weeks, I mentioned last show, uh, unfortunately, Nicola split up with me. Uh, I got news that they were doing cutbacks at work, which meant that I had to re-interview for my own job, and I'm still waiting to interview. I've had to look for a new housemate for um, where I'm living, and mum's been in hospital. She's okay, by the way, but uh, it's meant I've been visiting her every evening, so it's been a busy few weeks. All I'm saying is, as I say, I'm not saying I've got bad luck, I'm just saying, if you see me crossing the road, you might want to give it a second before you cross. But guys, look, uh, we've got so much to get through. Um, we've got some wonderful tracks coming up. Uh, I'm just going to very quickly go through it. We've got Bluesy Susie's requested Something Inside So Strong and Lean On Me. Uh, Rosemary Fish has requested Don't Stop Believing and The Climb by Miley Cyrus. Uh, Fight Song was also requested by uh, Rennie Shuttle. And we've got Where Is The Love by Black Eyed Peas request by her. Bridge Over Troubled Waters. By uh, Joseph Donovan, uh, Amy Liddington, who's tuning in now, has requested Three Little Birds by Bob Marley, Faith by George Michael, and also by Bob Marley, One Love. We've got Blue or Rise, uh, requested by Chris Jones, our other Blood Station Manager. Barry Jones, uh, the additional station manager, has requested Eddie Grant, Give Me Hope, Joanna. And Bluesy Susie has also requested additionally... Um, as it's International Women's Day, can I pop and request for Freedom by Beyonce and Kendrick Lamar? So we've got two versions of Freedom tonight. How, how's about that? But guys, we've got so much to get through. Uh, let's kick it off with another tune. And uh, we're going to go into the interview then. This is Don't Stop Believing. Journey. You're listening to SW20 Radio. That is the Black Eyed Peas and where is the love? Guys, we're about to go into our interview for this week and that's with Neil Gorton from Millennium FX who worked on loads of uh, fantastic film projects but he's mainly known, of, and Millennium FX is probably chiefly known, for their work on Doctor Who from the reboot in 2005 right up to um, just recently, it was last year, which they uh, ceased working on the project. And this was recorded for my previous uh, podcast, Gallifrey Stands, which is a Doctor Who podcast, which I did. Uh, and so we, we do speak a lot about Doctor Who and his work on that project. And it was just a wonderful chat. Uh, I will say the audio quality isn't quite up to snuff with uh, the kind of quality which I like to achieve now. But I think it's a very listenable interview and it's a fantastic time with Neil. Uh, stories to spare, as with so many of my guests. And we had just a great time um, also 
I kind of blush listening back to interviews from that time just because it was uh, 2016. And I like to think I've got better at the interview since then, uh, to be frank. Uh, so it's a few questions where I'm like, ah, could tighten that up, could have asked that better. But that's the nature of the beast. Every time you listen to something from yourself from a few years ago, uh, you always feel like uh, you've improved and you want uh, it to be better. But you can't travel back in time. Alas, much like Dog Do, which brings us into Neil. Here's the interview. Take it away past Squee. So I'm now here with Neil Gorton. Uh, from Millennium FX, the founder, in fact, of the of the company. So um, really looking forward to hearing about this. It's kind of a side uh, of the Dog 2 world, which I'm less familiar of. So this is going to be very exciting. So please welcome to the show. Neil, how are you today, sir? I'm very well. Yourself? Very good. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us today. My pleasure. So, uh, I mean, what I want to start with, I guess, then, is so how did you kind of get into Dog 2 yourself? Um what into working on the show or or well i mean what was your kind of familiarity well i was very very, i mean i was very familiar you know i grew up watching doctor who you know i I was a fan as a kid and um you know i grew up in the 70s and uh tom baker was my doctor um yeah although i remember the the sort of end of the pertwee era and i you know i was always interested i was into kind of special effects you know as i grew i kind of became aware of special effects and that kind of thing and i love monsters and all the rest and uh, as a kid we i'm from liverpool originally and um you know we go up to the the exhibition in blackpool you know the year you always did a little pilgrimage up to blackpool to see the lights see the illuminations and um invariably i'd always want to go in the doctor who exhibition Uh, i was always fascinated with that big tardis stuck outside the building and I love going down and looking at the, all the things down there, and you know, I think that's where it kind of got into my head that someone had to make those things. You know, it's when when you see something on TV, you can just imagine it. It all it all exists in a whole other world, the universe. But but then when you actually stand in one of those exhibitions and look at something there in front of you, and you notice the screws in the Dalek, and you notice the zipper in something, and you suddenly go, "Well, okay, someone actually makes these things," you know. Uh, so from a very young age, you were aware of kind of like all the mechanics of it. Indeed. And, you know, I became aware and it became my hobby making things. And Doctor Who was always one of the things that was on my, my radar. And I was, uh, loved Doctor Who. So you, you were, you were a maker from a young age. So was that something you did with your dad or how did you get into it? No, I was just fascinated as a kid. So I kind of read up and th- I was, I was artistic as a child. And, and then I like doing little sculptures and things. I was originally into animation. It was, um, it was kind of the Ray Harryhausen Sinbad movies and things like that. I loved all those, you know, the dinosaurs and Sinbad movies and yes. all that stuff. And so I would make, every kid loves dinosaurs, you know, but I wasn't happy enough just buying plastic ones. I had to make my own, you know. <laughs> and then it's a kind of natural progression where you see a movie and, you know, Valley of Guanji or something and you kind of go, well, how do they make it move? You know, and then you, yeah, you know, I remember my brother got a Super 8 camera one Christmas, which, I promptly adopted, uh, stole off him basically and started making my own little Super 8 films and that, doing animation and, and, but that kind of introduced me to a broader world of special effects and actually I found myself eventually much more in the, the live action prosthetics and makeup effects and animatronics. So for you, like, uh, do you remember any of those, uh, early, uh, Super 8 films that you made? Yeah, well, it was mostly, as I say, it was animation mainly, so, you know, I loved all the taking plastic, plasticine animation, or I had Star Wars kind of figures and make my own little Star Wars stories and 
dioramas and then I got into building model spaceships. So I'd build model spaceships and then blow them up in the garden and, you know, the usual thing. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, that, that was the thing when we were growing up. You could have, you know, there was such a world of all these Star Wars figures. You didn't have the same with Doctor. You, the Dapple gave it a go, but, but we didn't really have the breadth of characters. Yeah, it wasn't, but again, it wasn't, you know, Doctor Who to me was a different thing, and and yeah. the nice thing about Doctor Who and Blake Seven and all those, and uh, I remember seeing Hitchhiker's Guide not soon after, really, in the early oh, 80s. Yeah. And the nice thing about those is that, you know, you'd see Star Wars and see all these movies, and they were the big Hollywood things, but at least with Doctor Who and and Blake Seven and stuff, there, there was a, a sense of them being more accessible. So, you know, you'd watch... Uh, Saturday morning swap shop and there's uh, Matt Irvine making kind of spaceships out of uh, lampshades and things and being interviewed about his work on Doctor Who and there he is with K9 and you kind of going okay this that's real you know again that's tangible I could, I could access that I could do that um, so Doctor Who was much more you know for me as a child was much more accessible um uh, but it gave me something to kind of work towards and, you know, so it's always, it's, you know, it's always been in my life. It's always been in a passion. So, so when the show came around again, uh, and the first whiff that I got of it, I was, I was in there. So before you got to Millennium, how did you realize that you could, this was an actual career? Like you could go, like obviously you'd been taught by the show and seeing the zips and everything you said there, uh, that, that someone made them, but what did it just seem instinctive to you? It's like, yeah, I'm going to go and I'm going to make them. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it was literally, you know, when I was young, it was, you know, what's a career? You know, what kind of career do you want to do? And I'd always, you know, seen those things. It became my hobby. So we'd make masks and do sculptures and do my little films. Uh, and of course, everybody wants their hobby to be their career, you know, and some people follow through and some people don't. Um, you know, I remember talking to the careers officer and, you know, they got me some brochure on how to apply to be a BBC makeup artist and all this kind of thing. And, you know, you read, how to go about it but um again that accessibility you know the bbc was always great for you'd look at the end credits on something and yeah. it would have a name on you know i remember writing to various people care of the bbc you know and it'd be whoever the makeup artist was or the special effects visual effects designer on something um there was a series called the tripods yes uh, and I remember writing to the, the special effect, the visual effects designer on that and just care of the BBC. And, uh, and he very nicely sent me a letter back with a load of, you know, blueprint because I was interested in the tripod models themselves. And he sent me some of the blueprints and pictures and, you know, it was lovely. You could, you could actually access people and communicate with them. And, and, and very often people would answer and give advice. So, you know, I just followed that advice and, and aimed towards a career and um, built a portfolio of things when I was young. Uh, and, and everything's about your talent, you know, your skill. There's, I mean, there's all kinds of degrees and certificates you can get these days, but when I was young, there wasn't. So basically, uh, if you were going to get a job, you basically had to show that you were capable of doing it. So I made these things at home and then went to, went to London, went knocking on doors, showed a portfolio around, and eventually someone gave me a job. I mean, there's definitely something to the whole thing of, from a young age, you just being interested in it and just that being a passion and you'd created this stuff which you could show people. So obviously that you know, gives you a big uh, leg up when you're going to show a portfolio, I guess. Well, yeah, it's got to be relevant. You know, I've, I've always had it where, 
you know, when I was in the position of interviewing people, you know, you get someone to bring in who'd say, oh, I'm interested in this area, and they bring in their portfolio of what they did at our college, and it'd be like, well, you know, they're showing you a giant kind of collage of, you know, their their interpretation of the effects of pollution on the world in a collage, you know, and right. you go, it's very nice, but I need to make monsters. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. so how does this relate? You know, you've, you've got to show me something that relates to what I needed to do. You know, if I have a collage monster, I'll give you a call, but as it stands, you know, we, we need someone who can make these things. And I was making those things when I was young. I was building animatronics. I was making foam latex prosthetics. And then, yeah, you know, I just did stuff that was relevant to people who were looking to hire people to do this. So I got the first film I worked on, I was 17. And I've just come up through the industry from that point. So what was the, f- the first film that you worked on? Oh, it was uh, a low-budget American horror called Waxwork, uh, which starred David Warner and Zach Galligan. Uh, I didn't go out to the States on that. I was, I was just working for a company in the UK who were making prosthetics and sending stuff out. Um, but, yeah, that was, that was the very first film. Um, but then I literally... The, the third thing I worked on, I was, I was only 18, and I was building the main creature for a film called The Unholy. Uh, which was, which I did go out to Los Angeles to work on and, um, with, uh, oh, I can't remember half the actors in it, but anyway, it was, it was a fun horror movie in the, the late 80s. So how, how did you find out about these jobs over in LA? Well, they were, they were being done by British companies. Right. Okay. So they were working and with then the, I shipped yeah. out with the company to do the work. Right. And, and how great is it? First uh, job out, you're working on a film which has got David Warner on it. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah. and Zach Allegan, who was, you know, at the time had just done, not long done Gremlins and things, so, you know. Ah, uh, that's, I was trying to play, I, I knew I knew the name. Yeah, so. Yeah. So in, oh, in the fantastic. 80s, that was a, you know, biggish name, so. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And uh, so how long were you working in, in the business then before you kind of decided to, that you aim it towards your own company? Uh, I probably, probably quite quickly because I was, I kind of got into the industry early. You know, most people were coming in from doing a degree in art or something and would be already in their early twenties before they, they even started, you know, as a runner. Whereas I, I came in at 17, moved up very quickly. So by the time I was in, you know, 20, I was already supervising jobs on small films myself. So by the time I was, what, 24, 20, 20, yeah, I think it was about 24, and I worked for, did a series for Jerry Anderson called Space Precinct. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, so I did two years of that, and, you know, I was head of the department on that. So, yeah, you know, I, it was quite quick, you know, and I came into the, the industry at a time where it was all, it was growing reasonably quickly. So, you know, there weren't, weren't that many people, but then, just as I kind of got in the industry, places like Henson's Creature Shop started to really explode with Ninja Turtles and Flintstones and all those sort of movies. Mm-hmm. 
the company I worked for at the time, a uh, company called Image Animation, had just done the first Hellraiser movie and went on to do several more Hellraisers and Nightbreed and all these sort of films. So it was an expanding business, and I was kind of in just at the right time. So, you know, as it grew quickly, I grew quickly with it. So I got a, to a kind of position of, you know, running my own departments and things by my early 20s. And which one of those uh, earlier um, things that you worked on was your favourite to, to work on? Well, the, I suppose Saving Private Ryan, which I did oh, when wow. I worked on when I was 25, 26. And it's working for Spielberg. I mean, that's it, really. <laughs> it's, yes. it's, it's all, it doesn't get much better than that. And it was. It was phenomenal. You know, and I was heading a department for for steven spielberg which was just you know growing up with spielberg movies you know and loving all the raiders and et and close encounters and everything so so to be working for the man was um pretty incredible so what, what kind of things did you have to make for that that must have been fantastic well i said private ryan i mean it's, yeah yeah it's really obvious i think <laughs> 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 <People> die <laughs> right fair enough <laughs> I was just wondering if there's like um because uh, I I saw those the effects on that were amazing of um just just the the gore of people blowing up and and yeah, you know, exactly. didn't didn't spare you know, anything. Lot, um, lots of lots of people died. So you know that sort of um, sums it up really. Include people, animals. Uh, you know, the, those cows. Famous scenes with cows and all the popping. You know, yeah, all that kind of stuff. Well, my favourite moment is is when they're landing on the beaches and they've got uh, the guy who just takes his helmet off and it's just a stupid move and a stupid moment and it just yeah. seems so real that that moment. Yeah. Everything, but well, everything was kind of based on on real accounts. I mean, ba- it, you know, nothing was kind of made up. They literally yeah. took all these eyewitness accounts and picked out those moments and recreated them. So even ones that seem odd or strange, they're, they're based on real observations people who were there saying i saw this i saw that so you know that that yeah you know everything was taken from reality it wasn't some fantasy creation of people dreaming up horrible things it was literally everything was taken from a <coughs> somewhere there's an account of someone on that beach who saw that thing happen yeah uh, so it gives an incredible impact and, and it was amazing it was fabulous to be, be involved in a project that was great to work on Amazing, amazing to Spielberg, you know, didn't disappoint. He was a, an incredible guy. And the film itself is a classic. So, you know, the, at that point, you kind of go, well, there you go, really. It doesn't get much better than this. <laughs> no, okay, yeah, I can imagine. Um, so, yeah, so then you, I mean, was Millennium Effects the first company that you founded? Um, but Millennium, uh, funny enough, came about around the year 2000, hence the imaginative name. Yep. Uh, and, uh, I'd had very, I had a company before that with a partner who wanted to go off and do other things. So, you know, but the company's name had his name on as well. So you want to change the name. So eventually Millennium in its present form came into being, uh, in, well, it was 1999, I think, when that actually got incorporated. And that was just under my name and moved forward from there. And do you think there's anything which you learned from that first company which helped the Millennium kind of oh, yeah. get set well, up? Oh yeah, well, you know, I went through se- you go through several permutations, you know, because you're you're also bouncing back and forth between, you know, when I did space briefing, for example, you work for the production. There's two different ways of working. You can have a business, 
and people bring jobs to you and you do it as a company, or you can go and work for a production. So you're on production company's payroll and you set up yeah. a under them. Both way, a lot of people bounce back and forth between that, uh, because that's the two sort of standard ways jobs are run. Obviously a production would tend not to do it on a small job because to tool up and gear up and equip just to do a small job is ridiculous. So you go to a company. But if the project like Space Precinct, which was a, a two year project, um, with a lot of episode, a lot of <coughs> a hell of a lot going on, it makes more sense for them to hire you as an employee. Uh, right. you put the, take on a space, you know, they, they organize a space and simply you put whatever equipment in there and operate for two years, cranking out all the stuff. So, so for, you know, up until I set up Millennium, basically I kind of operated in that way, going, working for productions or for other companies and then running smaller projects and what have you either myself or with, with other people. And then eventually you just settle into, you know, the groove and make a bit more commitment to having one business and a premises. And, you know, you've got to pay the overhead regularly. So you've got to be sure you're going to pull in enough business to be able to do that. Um, so that was just kind of the right time. SW20. What were the earlier jobs which Millennium worked on before Doctor Who came along? Uh, well, a lot. Of, one of the, the things was I had kind of realised that television was an interesting area and wasn't being. Most people at the time were much more focused. Television and film were very different worlds. So you know, television yeah. would shoot on tape or on sixteen millimeter. Movies were done on thirty-five millimeter. You know, it was very different just kind of world but then slowly but surely i saw television becoming much more part of my world and more crossovers you know and i kind of realized that the the great thing you know i saw a couple of recessions in the film industry uh but also noticed that television never got touched by them and that's because right. you know especially with the way the bbc is funded it's publicly funded so a recession isn't going to impact on the the flow of money Whereas films, right. you know, um, there's tax breaks and then the tax breaks go. And then, you know, at one time, every damn film was being done in Australia. You know, Superman movies, Star Wars movies, everything went to Australia. And then the tax breaks changed and what have you. And at one point in Australia, they had one movie made in an entire year, you know, <laughs> as opposed to <laughs> for, and their whole industry collapsed. So... So seeing how transient and how irregular film could be, I noticed the television was quite nice, steady business. Um, 
And yeah, I just kind of realized that if you've got a company, you've got to kind of keep, as I say, paying the overhead. Uh, if you rely on films, you're always going to be walking a very, very narrow tightrope. Whereas if you work on a number of TV productions, uh, you're, you're safer. So I kind of courted that market really for a while there and managed to, you know, get involved. Uh, lots of comedy shows, lots of prosthetics for comedy. Uh, Catherine Tate, I created Nan for Catherine Tate and Derek Fay and all those characters. Uh, worked a lot with Paul Whitehouse, Harry Enfield. Um, yeah, just lots of that kind of work. And you re- and the nice thing is they become reoccurring. So, you know, you do it one year and then it comes back next year and you do it all over again. Whereas a film tends to be you do it once and it's gone. Um, so uh, there was also all the kind of, uh, uh, what are they called? I'm trying to think of that. I forget everything I work on. Um <laughs> Not Waking the Dead, the other, the other one uh, where basically it's about autopsies and chopping people up. Um, Silent Witness. Silent, Silent Witness. Right. <laughs> um, so things like Silent Witness, you know, building corpses, building bodies, uh, autopsy, all that kind of thing. You, say, you know, every week there's a new thing to build. And, and then at the end of a series, you know, Nine months later, that you're getting a call from the producer going, right, next series. So, so it was a lot of those kind of shows. Hell of a lot of that kind of stuff to begin with. Um, some genre stuff. There was a series called Strange. I don't know if you ever remember that with uh, Richard Coyle. Um, no. No, check it out. It, it ran for one season on the BBC and it was all kind of demons and monsters and kind of wacky stuff. So. Uh, yeah, I think it rings a faint bell there because uh, Richard was the guy from uh, Coupling, yeah? That's it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, lot basically that kind of stuff. Lots of that kind of stuff, um, and the, build the business on that really. Because uh, the danger is you can chase movies, you know, and you can be down to the last two and spend months trying to pitch and get a movie, and then basically not get it. And at that point, you've got, you know, the rent's been due for a while, <laughs> and so you can pay. You know, whereas you know, if you're working across a whole bunch of TV shows, the, there's always money come uh so yeah you know kind of went that way and and still did films picked up bits and bobs on films uh which was nice kept kept working on movies but you know tried not to get too wrapped up in it and keep a nice steady film uh television business coming in and was there uh, you know is there a genre which you prefer working in or is it just to, to keep the work as diverse and interesting as possible well i mean one of my greatest achievements i always tell people is that, uh, you know, uh, I've never really been pigeonholed. Right. You know, a lot of people, uh, individuals or companies get kind of known for doing one kind of thing. Um, and then all the jobs they get are that kind of thing. Whereas if you look at Millennium, you know, we've never kind of found ourselves in that kind of pigeonhole where you would love to do this kind of work, but no one ever gives you it. Uh, we we literally get to do everything, whether it's super realistic uh, medical dramas. You know, we did uh, Critical last year, which was phenomenally very well received. But, you know, unfortunately, the show didn't get um, recommissioned. But, the you know, the effects, the 
the level of detail and the whole medical side of it was phenomenal. But at the same time, we're doing Doctor Who, we do monsters, we do creatures, complete fantasy things. We do animals. So we got a lot of kind of realistic animals to do for commercials and promotion and uh, film and TV. Uh, plus then things like subtle character work, you know, um, subtly changing people's appearance to, to the level that, you know, you might watch something and not realize someone's wearing a prosthetic. Um, yeah. and, and comedy, lots of comedy stuff. So really we cover the, the whole range and we, we get a great selection of work and that's down to basically just managing not to get pigeonholed, that's which great. the industry tends to pigeonhole people, you know? So, so avoiding that was, was took a lot of effort. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, obviously we, we've got to get onto the Dr. Who of it all. So, so what, when, how does that happen? Like, you know, you said that uh, you were very interested when it was coming back, but uh, do they approach you? Do you put a pitch into them? Yeah, um, it was, um, you know, most of these things are word of mouth, uh, you know, and you can spend a fortune on advertising, but the reality is most of your work comes from word of mouth. Um, and Dr. Who came about, I saw, I saw it mentioned in trades and things that it was being done. Uh, but very quickly I heard that, um, uh, Davy Jones, who's a, a prosthetics guy, makeup and prosthetics guy from Liverpool, uh, was going to do it. So I kind of obviously didn't pursue, you know, professionally you don't go steaming in, you know, over someone. So I kind of just went, Oh yeah, Okay. It's, it's gone somewhere else. Um, and then, Suddenly I get a phone call from the producer, from Phil Collinson, saying, hey, would you be available to come in for a chat? And I was like, okay. And what happened was Davey would get on to do the makeup, and they'd assume that the makeup artist could do all the prosthetics as well. And then when Davey got the first scripts, he just looked at him and went, hang on, there's big creature suits, there's monster, this is way too much for me. Um, I can do, I can do one or the other. And really, you know, much more comfortable taking on the makeup department head and doing a few of the little alien-y, character-y stuff and passing on. And I knew Davey and, you know, we'd met a few times and he's a lovely guy and um, gone on well with him. And he just recommended me and just went, look, if you're going to do this, go to Neil. So fortunately, Davey very kindly, you know, pointed them in my direction. And and as I say, it's nearly always by recommendation that people follow. And unfortunately, Phil, you know, and Russell took Davey's recommendation because uh, I think they'd both or definitely Russell had worked with Davey before. Um, so he trusted what Davey was saying and they just came and asked for a meeting and I had a meeting and they just gave me the job. Wow. Which was very lucky. And I, I always appreciate, you know, Davey just, you know, pointing that at, at me. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the the the. The thing as well, I mean, I know I, I might mythologize this a bit, but I wonder what it's like to step into something like Doug 2, because, I mean, especially now, it seems like such a huge operation. Did it feel a little intimidating because it's such a big show, or was it kind of, I know no, it was kind it, of... It, uh, it wasn't a big show, it was tiny. Yeah. When, when it, the reality was in the industry, I mean, the you know, as much as I was interested in it, I also, I remember talking to a production designer friend of mine just after I'd had a call asking for a meeting and before I'd been to the meeting. And he'd been, you know, approached about it and he was saying, uh, he was, he actually said to me, Oh God, don't touch it with a barge pole. It's <laughs> the budget's tiny. What they want to do for the budget is ridiculous. 
Yeah. Uh, want to do it all in Wales, which is even harder. There just isn't, any, you know, it's hard to find the people there. I mean, well, the Wales is fantastic. The crews are fantastic. But, you know, suddenly there'd never been a show like this done there. It was a massive ask. And he was just like, oh, God, you know, anyone, anyone who takes this on is going to be a bit mad, really, because it's just way over ambitious for the budget, which it was. You know, I mean, the the truth of the matter was it was a massively ambitious thing for effectively not enough money. <laughs> you know? yeah. We spoke to Mal Young a while ago and she, he was saying about like uh, about trying to get the money together and how, how tight it was. Yeah. Oh. And um, and, you know, you throw Cardiff in the mix with. As I say, not, not to knock it at all, I absolutely love Cardiff. It's, it's just one of the greatest places in the world. But at that time, again, it was sort of unproven with this kind of thing. You know, there's, there's plenty of production that been going on there, but suddenly you go, well, God, you know, where, where do I even find the two? How do we, there is no local people with that, that, this specific kind of experience. So you're just going to go, this is going to be real tough work. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there was people kind of recommending not to touch the show. Uh, and and if, I, if I may ask, just look. so I was just going to ask, where were you uh, based at the time? Well, London. I mean, it's still, yeah. you know, no one's, we weren't based in Cardiff. Um, right. Which is Same why but, people talk about going to Cardiff was just like, well, why? it's hard work working on a show. You know, we still, we're based just outside of London still because we rely on freelancers. Film industry, you know, we could be working on apps where we need like 30 people with relevant skills coming to work every day. They don't live in Cardiff. They live yeah. in London. That's where the industry's at and still is. You know, I, I, you know, I love Cardiff. I'd happily move a workshop to Cardiff and do stuff there, but there isn't 30 to 40 freelancers with relevant skills I can draw on. Um, sure. so that's just the reality. And it definitely wasn't back then, you know. So you just have to work with what's there, and and that's what a lot of people were doing. You know, we're going well. We need people who could build science science fiction props and weapons. Is there anyone in Cardiff? You know, as it turned out, you find those people. But but if you go to London, if you're a prop maker, you go, yeah, I can call endless amounts of people who can come in and do that, who can turn up at the drop of a hat. But you can't do that three hours away from London. So. So logistics-wise, anyone taking it on was looking at it, going, "This is a this is a headache." Yeah. And the budget's not good, and the budget's even less because it's a, it's what the BBC call a regional production, as opposed to you know if you do it in London, it's got a bad budget. If you go out to Cardiff, it's an excuse to give it a, a smaller budget. So all in all, it was just not an attractive proposition for for right-minded people. Fortunately, I wasn't in, in, my, in my right mind. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, I'm just picturing this. So, so you've got a city which is away from where you're based, three hours away. You've got to find all these people and uh, you've got not a lot of money to offer them. Where do you start? Well, exactly. You know, so you... Um, um, I mean, the thing is, we build all the prep work. You know, you might spend two months prepping something and you only shoot one day. So, first of all, the, ma the majority of our work is in a workshop. And that's not, I'm not going to move that to Cardiff because it makes no sense. You know, I can't get the crew there. I can't. So we're, we're just doing business as usual when it comes to the workshop. Um, 
and for us going to Cardiff is just a location shoot. It becomes a problem if you need specialist stuff because there's there's no specialist shops in Cardiff, so you're going to have to go and get it from London. Um, so there's bits of logistics there, nothing terrible to overcome. Uh, it's just logistics, you know. So, but you just run it like any other job. Um, but it's just that it's on a tight budget. It's a very tight budget, and it's very ambitious. So, what what was the most difficult thing that they asked you to make for the first series that you had to to make on a tight budget? Uh, well, it, it was just everything. I mean, <laughs> frankly, you know, <laughs> the Sladine, the you know, you're trying to do interesting things and exciting things and new things and you know it's schedule it's budget it's everything you know um and of course it's people who hadn't really done this before you know uh, phil phil collinson's terrific russell are fantastic all wonderful people but there's no you know the simple fact is if you've not worked with those kind of effects before you don't know what to expect and you don't know what to and you, you don't know the little things that are going to have a big impact so everyone was on a big learning curve. And so it, it's just painful and it's difficult and it's slow and it's, it's problematic. I mean, now, now, you know, anything I've done, you know, since, uh, you know, after a couple of years of operating on Doctor Who or, or even since kind of going in to do things like Wizards versus Aliens with Russell, yeah. you know, Russell knows how it all works. Russell knows prosthetics inside out, you know, and he knows what he can do and he knows what he can't, he knows what he can push. But back then, you know, they didn't. And that's just the nature of it. You know, they've never worked on that kind of thing before. So everyone's on a big learning curve. So, you, you know, it just is a struggle. Um, but good enough, everyone involved is, is trying their damnedest to make this great, you know, and which is why it was a success because everyone came at it with so much passion and desire and, and really wanted to be there. Because, you know, as I say, the people who didn't want to be there kind of clocked very quickly. It wasn't going to be much in the way of money or much in the way of, you know, and it was all, it was just going to be hard work. And they didn't take the job. So all the people who were there and people like, you know, all the writers, all the, you know, um, uh, production designer, Ed Thomas, people like that, who, who were just great, smart, passionate people who were determined to make it work come hello high water and uh, and that's what happened you know we we bullied it despite the budget and everything that was stacked against us the whole production just got it made and made it look great and and it was a success thank god the um, monsters which you mentioned there with the Slovene. Now that that calls to mind something of it was uh, something which was used with a lot of practical effects, but also digital effects. Where is it decided how much you're going to go for physical or, or digital, and do you work with the other departments to kind of figure that out? Yeah, I mean, the, you know, you all sit around a table and thrash it out. I mean, that's the the sensible way to do it. Yeah, um, that's what I like about television is you know. 
film, there's far more, you know, the, there's 11 producers and there's this and there's a visual effects this and a visual effects producer who is no, a non-creative, is purely a financial person and all this kind of thing and layers and layers. Whereas television, there'll be myself, the guys from Milk uh, and the producer and we just sit there and go, right, here's, here's, a li- here's dinosaurs on a spaceship. Do we do it digital? Do we do it practical? Or do we do it mix? And if we're doing it mix, who's doing what? And you sit there and you just thrash it out. Um, and, and, and everyone agrees and we go away and do it because no one's got time to be silly about it or no one can afford to try this, that and the other or go different routes or test. It's just, we've got to make it work straight off. We've got limited funds. What's the smartest way to spend that money? And if it's, doing something digitally or doing something practically, we we kind of, you know, we might even sometimes have the producer say to us, well, we're thinking of doing this practically, and we'll go, hell no, do, do it digital, believe me, it's going to work out better for you, you know? So, yeah. and the digital guys will do the same back, you know, just go, look, to be honest, that's it's going to be cheaper to build a live element, and maybe we'll kind of, you know, work together on some part of it. So we just have a good, healthy respect and good healthy relationship and the producers know that we've all been there and done it and and they listen you know which is what's great about this kind of show you've got producers who actually listen and believe what you're saying and understand why you might say it and um and that's why the you know the special effects and the all that kind of side of things on took to who is is so good um I mean, something which I've noticed also over the last few years, not just in Doctor but in general, is more of a swing to more practical effects, at least. Uh, have you noticed that in your work? There's something. I mean, you know what? It's one of those things. It's finding the level. You know, I, I yeah. remember right at the beginning, there was a desire to kind of try a bit of everything and explore areas. And we did things like the Slovene, you know. In the first instance, there was a CGI version and, and a suit, which would intercut. Uh, but, you know, you basically realize that brings with it certain problems, um, stylistically, uh, practically shooting wise. And it was fairly early on, it was realized it, it just made more sense to, if you're going to put someone in a suit, then just shoot that and don't make a CGI version unless there is an absolute specific need for, because it just makes it harder to intercut and harder to integrate. But they're just things you discover, and it's no detriment to what they're doing. It's no detriment to what we're doing. It's just you you find what works for you. Uh, I think they also realized that there was, um, I don't know, it, it, it's like if you think of CGI characters, uh, there's not many that kind of, uh, how can I put it? I mean, I, I, I asked someone who, who dealt with merchandising once, you know, what, what are the toys that sell the best and what are the ones that are left on the shelf and the ones that out of characters, the difference between a CGI and a, a physical one, it would be the, um, the CGI characters would be left on the shelf more. Yeah. But I think there's, there's a kind of, there's a reason for that. It's not about the quality of work or anything like that. It, it's just purely that I think you connect better to a real thing. When I was a kid, you know, I knew those things on screen were real and, and then I could go and see them in an exhibition and, you know, there was something more tangible about it. And so I like tangible characters. 
And I think that's ingrained in us. So kids love Cybermen because they could meet a Cyberman. Yeah. You know, but if it's a CGI thing, you can't meet them. They could, they're not real. And nice. I think on some basic human level, people know that. So yeah. they just don't connect with it. Whereas, you know, something like an Ood, you, you know it's a guy in a mask, but something about it is quite appealing. So, so yeah, I think there was a, a natural realization that, you know, there was a, a, there's a lot of practical, you know, that when you build a Cyberman suit, it can be in every single shot and doesn't make any difference. Once you pay for it once, you can shoot, shoot it to death. But with a CGI thing, every shot it's in, you're paying for. So right. if you, so once you've built the model, if you do it in 10 shots, it's one price. If you do it in 20 shots, it's doubles. But if you do it in a physical suit and you put it in 10 shots, it's the same as the prices if you do it in 20 or 40 or 60. All you're paying more is to have the actor there. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, so it's, it, it, on, on an economic level as well, it made a lot of sense to do things as practical as possible. As it just gave, gave you something that you could shoot all day long. You kind of got a lot more out of it. You have more flexibility with it. You could go off and do publicity events with it. You know, you can't take a CGI character and do the Doctor Who symphonic. It doesn't work. You know, it can only exist on a screen. Um, you, you know, there's just so many things you can do with a physical thing. Uh, it's now, you know, you go in the exhibition in Cardiff, you know. I mean, if you did everything CGI, it would be a very, very, very dull exhibition. Yeah, of course, so, yeah. So all those things, you realize that building physical props, physical monsters, masks and things, just gives you a lot more to play with. Um, and your limitations are just the limitations of what a person can do. Um, so there's still instances, you know, the Cybermen episodes, there's loads of CGI Cybermen. There's probably a whole bunch that you don't realize is going on in there. Uh, because they, they, it works great. They integrate them brilliantly and, you know, they can do a lot with those. Uh, so yeah, you know, we just work very much hand in hand. Um, and, and it's great. It's a fantastic working relationship. I, I really enjoy what we can do with it. As someone who grew up loving special effects in general, it's, it's fantastic to work with the other special effects departments, as well. uh, whether it's the Danny and blowing things up and milk and all the visual effects and what have you, you know, all of it. It's great. We work very, very well together. Yeah, and another collaboration, which you've sort of mentioned there, is working with the people in the suits. So we've had a couple of the guys on, uh, John Davey and Ross Mullen on the show, yeah. and uh, they've spoken about kind of uh, wearing all these these costumes and how good a shape they must be in. Uh, so, so what, like, how much is it necessary to sometimes adapt stuff when you're working with the with the people? Like, do they, are they instrumental? Are they working with you when you're designing or when you're putting stuff together? Well, no, I mean, a human being's a human being, you know, so yeah. I mean, don't really... Uh, you don't need a not to you know take away from the performers, but there's not really a lot of performer input into it um, because we're very much you know we know how that works, we know what works. Um, some of us do that. I've I've done performance myself, and I do choreography and all that kind of thing. So you know we can work that out for ourselves. Uh, you do a little bit of tweaks to to performers, you know, things just fittings, you know, making sure things fit a bit. Um, there's a little bit with choreography, you know, there might be 
sometimes the Elsa will come in and do a bit of choreography and you find that there's something particular they want to do that, you know, causes a problem or is a limitation. Um, you know, it's like the Cybermen. There was originally a kind of salute the very first Cybermen, the Age of Steel ones, they wanted to do, and actually the way the suits were built, there was just no way the arm would <laughs> would go to that position. It's just, it's like, look, you want the design, but the design limits the movement. Um, what can you do? Uh, so you just come up with a different salute, you know. Uh, the same with the marching, you know. Russell wanted them all in a line marching along, and, and you go, well, the problem is that the way the eyes are positioned, you only get tunnel vision forwards. You get no peripheral vision. So if you try and get a guys in a row walking with no peripheral vision, they just keep banging into each other because they can't tell if they're walking, you know, they can't see the distance between them because they've got no peripheral, you know, awareness. So, so you have to find ways to either work around it or adapt to that. So there's, there's things you keep in mind, you know, if the script says someone's got to be incredibly dynamic, I mean, that's why we changed the Cybermen suits further for uh, the new version, because they really wanted them to be like ninjas, super dynamic, crashing about all over the place, jumping and rolling, so the old suits were fiberglass, and we switched to a, a polyurethane rubber, so it just gave them a massive amount more flexibility, uh, and they were designed to be as dynamic as possible. Um right. It gave a different finish because you couldn't get the same metal finish on them, but, you know, that was fine. It's one of those things you have to kind of figure out. It's like, look, if we're going to, we can't do hard materials if you want them to be that dynamic. Whereas the Age of Steel were meant to be big, clumping, galumping things. So, you know, you take all these little factors into account. Um, but the performance wise, you know, I mean, the, the reality is we have to be, we can't tailor too many things to performers because, it's just the nature of it. You know, when you're building eight Cybermen, you've got to be a pretty standard size, you know, and it becomes who the slipper fits. So you kind of go, look, we have a suit that fits people between five foot ten and a half and six foot. So if you're six foot two, you don't get the job. <laughs> it's as that. I'm sorry. You know, so if you don't fit in the suit, you don't get the gig. We, we can't build just per person we have to build a standard size and find people to fit and then you have you know the, the, those kind of one-off characters or more specific ones so you know we have a, a good bunch of performers who are great inside suits because not everyone's great inside a suit you know you, there's some people they might give a great kind of uh, audition and then you go and stick a big head on them and they just freeze yeah they can't move they can't function and uh, you know, you can go get a performance out of them because they're just, they don't know how to project through a mask. Right. Uh, so you're, you're looking for a certain kind of performers and then, you know, you get certain people who are, who are great at that. You know, people like Ross, Ross Mullen, who is, you know, built a lot of career on, he's an actor as well, but he also is a very good movement performance guy. And you yeah. can stick him in all kinds of suits and things and bring it alive. South Wales, we hear ya. SW20 Radio. I can almost see it, that dream I'm dreaming. But there's a voice inside my head saying, you'll never reach it. 
The other thing I was going to ask you about was uh, when you go out to do the live shows, they're, they're just uh, so amazing. How like easy is it to go out and to set everything up for those? Well, I mean, we do we do a lot of changes to the creatures for the live shows, obviously, because, you know, it's like um, Weeping Angels. They're, they're, you know, people don't realise, a lot of people don't realise that most of the Weeping Angels is, is people in makeup and prosthetics. Yeah. Uh, in fact, a lot of people haven't got a clip. They think they're actual statues, you know. Um, but of course, the level of prosthetics, I mean, there's several hours of makeup every day. And in the live shows, the performers who are playing Weeping Angels will also play other roles. So you can't put all those prosthetics on and do that. So you have to come up with variations which allow them quick changes. Um, so, yeah, you know, the, there's things you have to do and change and alter to be able to do the live shows to make them as practical as possible uh, and and function better and give the ability for quick change. And, you know, you can't you can't do hours of prosthetics on those shows. Um, so, you know, it's just an impossibility. But a lot of characters are prosthetic. So uh, some characters we just can't do and others we we come up with ways to make them work. Um, which might involve building, you know, variations on their costumes or, you know, weeping angels that pull on masks as opposed to glue on prosthetics, all that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's just a, another approach. You know, you have to take a look at the live show scenario, look at the realities look, when they sit there and say, well, between that setup and that setup, they have two minutes and 45 seconds to get changed. And so you have to go away and work out how to make it all work in two minutes and 45 seconds. <laughs> Does that ever feed back into the show? Like, have you ever found a better way of doing something by necessity? And you find little things that work, you know, a little... I mean, you're always cross-pollinating ideas, so you might find, you know, an element that works. I mean, the first time we tried the uh, flexible polyurethane for the that we used on the newer Cybermen, was building tour costumes for the older Cybermen. Uh, yeah. Because it was a real reality of uh, they were a bit clanky, they damaged quickly, the fiberglass took a lot of maintenance, and they were slow to get on. You know, they were a bit awkward to get on and off. So we were looking that we knew we were going to build new suits because they just needed something, a few adaptations in any way. And... Um, I've been out in L.A. and seen some of the Iron Man suits and saw how they used uh, soft rubbers. Oh, no, I say soft rubber. You know, they're, they're you know, pretty tough plastic, but they've got a flex to them. And seen how they use them for some sections and, and realized we could adapt the idea. So we built tour suits using that idea, and they, they worked incredibly well. Uh, survived incredibly well. So when we did the new version of the Cybermen and, and we knew they had to be much more flexible and dynamic and all the rest, we just went, well, you know, we've tried this. It works great. 
and uh, we can certainly apply that idea now to the the series going forwards because uh, it just gives us so much more flexibility and suits la- last longer and you can do more with them. Excellent. And the other thing which I was just uh, curious about was uh, obviously you've, you've worked through the show from the beginning of the, the uh, uh, revived series. Was there a kind of a change when uh, you went from Ross T. Davis to Stephen Moffat or did it was it just business as usual for you guys or you know, did, did he have a different way of working that affected you? Um. I mean, it was kind of business as you, it was an easy transition because we all knew Stephen anyway, you know, he'd been, sure. just, he'd been such a part of the show and, I'd, you know, you'd sat in those tone meetings with him and Russell, uh, <clears throat> on a number of episodes and, and so, yeah, you know, he was part of the family anyway. So that was a very easy transition. Uh, and I imagine it's going to be the same with Chris Gemnall, you know, just because yeah. Chris with Torchwood and who and the amount we've all worked together. Uh, you know that, that that's an easy dialogue. Um, the difference, I think the main difference between um, Stephen and, and Russell was just the fact that Russell, uh, Russell's actually a good artist himself. He draws cartoons, draws, you know, he, he's a really good artist. So he's, he's, I'd say he's more visual than Stephen um, in a way. So in terms of, translating ideas you know Stephen you, you do designs and you know he picks a design and all that but you know if you go to him and say well what do, what do you actually you know if there's a sticking point what what's your thought and Stephen can only sort of use words to illustrate his ideas whereas Russell could actually pick up a pen and draw it for you and there was a few times where we kind of reach a conceptual dead end where you're trying to figure something out and you're kind of going what exactly do you mean? <laughs> and, it, <laughs> and you'd get the, you'd pull up, tear up a bit of script page and just draw. And you go, right, I get it now, you know. But Russell was very good. He wouldn't de- present you with a drawing and say, build that. He would let you do it all. And the only time he would do that is when you literally were going, look, we, we've got to settle on an idea. We're kind of slightly stuck in a corner. And he'd pull it out the bag and just, you know, help us finish off or, you know, get to the finish line. Um, but I think he sort of respected the fact that even though he could, it was probably better to leave us to do our own designs and work that way. So, um, so really that's it, you know, but I always knew that Russell, I could always poke him and just go, I'll oh, just do as a drawing. <laughs> Save us all that. <laughs> okay. So just finally, uh, cause I know you're a very busy man. So thank you very much for spending time for us today. But I just wanted to know, uh, what were your favorites to, you know, have you been your favorite monsters to work on or your favorite models or whatever? Oh, loads of them. I mean, I haven't got like just a favorite. Um, yeah. I, you know, I, I loved the show as a kid. I loved all the characters. Cybermen have been fabulous. You, you know, you've kind of been doing it while when you start redesigning your own redesigns. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> and um, where where the fans were kind of before moaning about the thing I've redesigned and how the original was better, I've now got fans moaning about how I've redesigned myself. Uh, <laughs> right. So so at least there's that. Uh, so yeah, you know, Cybermen. I I loved Cybermen as a kid. You know, they were very. I you know, it's funny. I saw something online recently, and they had like the. I remember the Weetabix doctor who stuff you know i used to have them as a kid you get all the little pop out cut out and the scenes and i'm yeah. on all the side i love them 
and the Cybermen were always a strong influence on me. I love that concept, and um, it's been fabulous to do them twice, you know, and 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 not just as a company, you know, I with those characters, I sit and do the concept work myself, and um, or you know, in close collaboration with others as well. So, so to have actually, you know, I mean, I this version of the Cybermen, the latest, I actually, you know, did the sculptures of the head and designed all the maquettes for the body for everyone else to follow so you know i've taken a real personal because a lot of jobs they're so big you know we've got to kind of divvy up work between different people because you can't just want you know as they sometimes we've got like 30 with the cyberman build it'd be like 30 to 40 people working on that block you know to get it all built because it's a massive job so so it's not just one person in a shed knocking things out but where possible i do kind of take certain elements and go right i'm doing that because i really want to do it so davros i i've done the the design and the sculpture and and made davros um both times uh, for this you know for the returning series so he's been mine that um wasn't gonna let anyone else near davros um <laughs> uh yeah the cyberman i love doing the cyberman um, the Empress of Ragnos, uh, which always, it's its a hard, sometimes it never comes over on screen as well as what it does in real life. And if you actually saw the Empress of Ragnos in live, it was just phenomenal. And it was a simple idea. It worked so well. And I think even Russell wrote in his book, you know, one of the best days was seeing the rushes for the Empress of Ragnos. Yeah. And somehow it just didn't translate on screen. And I thought it looked great. Yeah, but it just was phenomenally better than what it came over. And I right. think it, it was one of those, there was a, there was a sort of limitation we had, which was the set. And not that they did a bad job. It was a location that was dressed. But, uh, but there was a limitation to where they could shoot and angles. Um, because they were doing set extensions, digital. And I think there was just, there was some practical limitation, which made it awkward to get certain angles on it. And just some of it didn't come across. Um, and I think that's just one of those, those unfortunate situations where, you know, your time and budgetary limitations eventually can, can, can have an impact. I mean, it wasn't terrible, but I just know from physically being there and knowing what it could do and how it could look to what I saw on screen, I just know there was, it, it, we didn't get the most out of it. Um, which will always be something I, you know, bitterly regret because it was just such a fantastic piece. And when you stood in front of it, it reared up, it reared up like 15 feet and it was enormous. I mean, the thing was huge and you just were so intimidated just standing in front of it. Um, and how it moved. And yeah, you just, you just go, oh, okay. That didn't really come across. <laughs> so you just um, nudge the writers now to write the the Ragnos's sister. Well, I did. I've been going ever since when we did it. <laughs> I would kept going on at Russell, going, you know, I can make it do this. I can make it do this. Honestly, get it. Come on. But uh, no, we we never re- revisited, unfortunately. Yeah, and things like that. I love the the Triceratops from Dinosaurs on a Spaceship. Uh, I was just love because it was just something different to do, you know. And it integrated incredibly well. And that was, that was a fa- fantastic combination of visual effects and practical effects, you know. And, and I think, 
you know, the guys at, at Milk and and ours, you know, I think if you ask, they'll say that, that that was a real high point episode for them as well. And that's one I think we both kind of go that really that was a, a great collaboration. And that Triceratops was fab. You know, it's running along. You've got interaction with the reactors riding it. And then you've got the close up of the animatronic and then you get the white and it all just worked together beautifully. And it was it was the perfect example of where you choose to use physical things and CGI things in the best kind of combination. So, yeah, things like that. Are, and, you know, being on set with that and making that work was great. You know, it was just that I, I really enjoyed being on. I went on set with that one and just had a lot of fun with it. Um, so, yeah, there's loads. There's just loads of, you know, Doctor Who is just favorite job because it's an entire career in a TV show, you know. Uh, because dinosaurs, robots, monsters, old age makeup, the, the old age on Matt Smith. Yeah. Uh, his, his finale was. That was one of my favorite aging jobs, I think, that, that's been on the show. I think that was kind of really it. Yeah. It almost perfect in there, yeah. And the shot, it was so poignant. It was lovely of him sat there and his performance was magic, you know? And, um, and it was lovely. It was just lovely to do. Uh, Matt's great and he really, you know, really worked that makeup well and you know that that was a real high point and um yeah lots lots of things you know the it, it goes on and continue will continue on i'm sure and i've got to say like you know just because you mentioned that one i think it's very notable that uh it, it it looked good when you did that with uh david tennant in some of the earlier episodes like the family of blood and with the um the master episodes but just you can see how the technology just improves and improves to to where Matt Smith and it's just it's just that yeah, step I mean, up. I mean, well, also you know, I mean, to be honest with the the one with the master uh, and David, it, there's there's sort of a thing that people don't realise, which is he was meant to start looking like that CGI thing. Yeah. Uh, and so people go, oh, it's an aging, and it's like, yeah, see, this is the problem. It, it, you know, script-wise, concept-wise, it was meant to go that way. And and there's things I wouldn't do personally because, you know, David's got a good head of hair, and then you go to something completely bald. Yeah. And that doesn't work. You know, if you look at Matt's aging, you know, the hair of the wig echoes his natural hair. Yes, uh, bit thinned and a bit back so to jump from david with a nice big thick head of hair to completely bald doesn't quite work and he's meant to be a hundred and whatever years old you know 100 200 years old or something uh in in literally a look of 200 years old and obviously the doctor is 900 and blah 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 but the, so there was sort of things that when you look at it in isolation, you just kind of go, well, does it really work as an old age makeup? And it's like, well, not really, be, but it's not meant to be just an old age makeup. So, but the great thing with Matt was it was just a straightforward, he's got old. Uh, and you weren't trying to tell other things with it. You know, or you, he wasn't transitioning into a, a miniature Yoda type thing, which we had on the other one, you know. <laughs> Um, or, and also there's things that, you know, family of blood, there was, there was, the, the, I, the one thing anybody who does prosthetics hates is you stick someone in old age makeup and then you have them lying in a bed. Because invariably, the, the looking, 
the head's just in a really crappy angle. <laughs> it compresses. It all looks weird. You know, people look different lying down than they are sitting up. So uh, prosthetics always look bad when people are lying down um, because it doesn't hang. You sculpt it as everything hanging, and, of course, prosthetics don't hang the same way as skin does. So I was never completely happy with Family Blood or um, the, the, the Sound of Drums one because they just, you know, they didn't feel right. But but Matt's one, no, I was thrilled with, and it was shot beautifully. It just worked really well, and it was uh, it was just a real pleasure, you know, to, to have that part of that episode, and then also making Matt bald as well, which was fun. <laughs> yes. Doing the, his bald head for his little, um, which was, was all a bit, Ridiculous, really, because he shaved his head, and the whole point was it was written in as a kind of reference to the fact that he shaved his head anyway, and then he started growing it back. So it was like, oh, actually, we got to stick a ball cap on now. This is mad. <laughs> right, I didn't realise that. I thought he was actually bald there. No, no, that's that, that's my work. It was uh, that's <laughs> oh, that's lovely. Completely, and of course, everyone just assumed he was bald, you know, because the the stories at the time about the fact that he shaved his head. Yeah, because you had him and Karen were both bold in that episode. Yeah. So you've got one scene where they're basically both bold next to each other, with yeah, both wearing so wigs. It all, it all just a bit crazy. But no, yeah, so that that kind of thing, you know, everything from dinosaurs, aliens, roboty, you know, Cybermen suits and and old age makeups, you know, it's great. Well, Neil, uh, thank you very much for your time, and thank you for making Doc Two look so fantastic still to this day. My pleasure. Sorry about the little interruptions. <laughs> Not a problem. What <laughs> happens? Um, yeah, yeah. That was blue and all rise. And that just about brings an end to the Dr. Squeeze show for this week. We'd like to thank our guest this week, Neil Gorton, the founder and uh, head honcho at Millennium FX. And uh, what a fantastic interview. Uh, As I say, that one was from the archive. Next week, we'll be back with a fresh brand new show and new interview. And um, just to round things off i'd like to just send our thoughts and our best wishes once again to the people in ukraine um being it's international women's day uh, to the mothers and daughters of ukraine i hope you're staying strong as well as to the sons and fathers and everyone who is there i've been dr squee that was my show until next week in a world where you can be literally anything please be kind i'm not trying to win i'm not doing this because i want to beat someone because I hate someone or because because I want to blame someone? It's not because it's fun. God knows it's not because it's easy. It's not even because it works, because it hardly ever does. I do what I do because it's right. Because it's decent. And above all, it's kind. It's just that. Just kind. Hey, you know, maybe there's no point in any of this at all. But it's the best I can do. Why not? Just at the end. <laughs>